TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to get the best out of you. And today we are talking about parenting, but not just any style of parenting. We're talking about parenting children with special needs. And today we're going to be hearing the story about combining parenting with other parts of your career, whether it's... Um, part-time or full-time, whether you're in the city or in the bush, and how you can achieve your career goals while facing the challenges of parenting in general, but also having a child with autism. So today we're going to be talking to Holly Hughes, who is an amazing woman who is undertaking all sorts of amazing projects at the moment, Um, but we're going to hear her story. And so welcome, Holly. Thanks, Carrie. So Holly, tell us Where's the story start? Where are you from? Where are we at now? And your beautiful children. Where does the story start? Gosh, you know, it depends how far you want to go back. But I guess the easiest point to start from is just over two and a half years ago when my son Fred was diagnosed with autism. I have three children and uh, Millie's uh, seven, Fred's five now and Rupert is four and really our lives changed so significantly at that time when Fred was diagnosed with autism. So were, you, were there any suspicions, were there anything, any gut instincts you had as a mum that something wasn't quite right? Fred wasn't talking, uh, but Rupert, my third child, was a bit of a surprise package for us all. And so I really just put it down to the fact that he was still struggling to come to terms with the arrival of a younger brother who was uh, only 17 months younger than him. And uh, it was actually my mother who eventually said to me, did I think Fred could have autism? Uh, At which point I said, absolutely not. I called my brother's ex-girlfriend, who's now a paediatrician, and said, who do I go and see so I can tell people to bugger off? Uh, I didn't go expecting a diagnosis. We could have seen the paediatrician I was referred to in the November Uh, I didn't have to be in Sydney then, uh, let alone take Fred down with me. So I put it off till February when I knew I had meetings already scheduled in. Uh, So we could have been quite a few months ahead of the ball, but uh, I honestly thought we were going for a no diagnosis. Thinking back to that meeting, uh, Louis, our paediatrician, did say to me, that uh, I he could give a diagnosis. He didn't think I was ready for one and therefore we should do some testing. Uh, what I managed to hear was that they needed to be do testing to be sure. The reality was Louis uh, and the psychologist Angela could have told us right there and then that's what we had, uh, but they knew I wasn't ready for that. So it was a process of the, of the child psychologist and the paediatrician basically working up to both myself and my husband that there was evidence there for us to be able to not refute the diagnosis, to accept the diagnosis and to also let us take a couple of months as we went through that process to start to digest that because it's a big shock. So what was that like, that that final okay, Holly and family, we've decided this is the diagnosis. Do you remember what that was like? 
I do. Um, the I knew it was coming. By the time we'd gone through all the processes and all the different tests, I knew it was coming. Uh, I didn't know what we had to do. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it was coming. Uh, I actually got given the diagnosis on a Friday morning when I was in Sydney getting the ferry from Manly to Circular Quay and was sitting on a packed ferry talking to the paediatrician about this because I was too scared to let him get off the phone. I needed so many answers right there and then. I suppose a normal person would have said, I'll call you back when they could have sat in an office. But I just thought if I let him go, I just, I guess I wasn't sure I'd have called back or what I would have done. And then we went in the next day and met with the psychologist who formally gave us all of the results and went through everything. We were lucky that we saw, you know, a great paediatrician and a great psychologist who organised a follow-up appointment uh, a month later to make sure we weren't still catatonic because it is a devastating blow. You, as a family, experience a huge level of grief because you do not know what the future holds, uh, but certainly the future that you had imagined for your child no longer exists, well, at least in the exact same format. And also we're still in the very, very early stages with autism in many ways. There is no uniform information. Parents receive nothing. They are left so much to their own devices. It's, it's scary. So at that time of diagnosis, you guys were feeling like the, everything had changed and the grief started to come. What, what came after the grief? What, what happened at home when you got home? Uh, I turned into a crazy woman. Uh, I spent, gosh, three or four months constantly on the phone, on the internet, reading books, uh, talking to people. I was not, you know, we were advised if we didn't want to tell anyone, we didn't have to. That was not the way I approached it. I went out and spoke to almost every person I could stop in the street uh, because it was amazing how... The more people I spoke to, the more information I got, the more people knew someone else with autism or knew where I could access some sort of therapy or to go and speak to somebody else. And so I spent a a good few months in some sort of obsessive state where I just researched and researched and researched and researched. Uh, At one stage, I nearly had us booked into summer holidays in an apartment in Mooloolaba because it was the only speech therapist I could find that would work through the summer holidays. Um, It was really getting to the point of the ridiculous. Uh, And then I had continually heard about a private clinic in Sydney and I eventually rang them hoping that they would do holiday programs because based in the country, obviously, doing a, a private program through a clinic in Sydney didn't appear like something we could do. Uh, and thought maybe we can just do it in the school holidays and then they eventually got back to me explaining their outreach program uh, told me that there was a parent information day on a particular Friday that I was already in Sydney on that day and went with my mother and we sat there and I had my Fred folder the time it was a big purple lever arch folder with absolutely every piece of information in the world in it And we went to the Parent Information Day and heard from a couple of women there who not only run the centre but have children with autism themselves, have have walked the walk and have been through the journey, uh, had done crazy woman things themselves before they discovered ABA, uh, Applied Behaviour Analysis, which is the therapy that we do. And I walked out of that meeting knowing that that was what we were going to do at whatever cost. So 
when you're in the crazy lady stage, did you feel like the more knowledge you had was empowering or that the act of getting the knowledge and the information was actually a way of soothing yourself? You felt like you were doing something. So was it was it building empowerment or was it just the act of it was something you felt you could do? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, look, I think it was a real combination of the two. There was no information provided to us. You get a couple of flyers telling you what autism is and for us it included a support group in Maroubra, which about 800 kilometres away is not really an ideal, convenient location. So we, you know, it was it was a real combination of trying to find out what was available, what we could do, where we could go and how we could help and what it meant, but also actually doing something because you feel incredibly hopeless when you don't know how best to help your child. So we we spent a lot of time, my husband and I, going through a whole series of options, of things that we could do. We One of the things that we found was that there were a lot of people willing to take our money but not necessarily provide what they should be providing. Uh, which was incredibly heartbreaking because you're you're already experiencing such a difficult period of grief to then have people take advantage of you is really quite confronting. What about the kids? What were they how were they re- relating to each other at this stage? I suppose they were only little, but what was can you remember what that was like in the home and the other kids how they was their world changing with the diagnosis or was it more the grown-ups? I don't think the children noticed anything in particular at the beginning. Um, There was only three and a half years between my eldest and my youngest. So they they weren't overly aware of what was happening. My eldest daughter is quite intuitive and so she was very affectionate with me and would come in and sit on my lap while I was again on the computer chasing things up. But... You know, when you've got little babies, there's nothing like that as to be a distractor. As much as I could obsess and as much as I could focus on what I wanted to do with Fred, I still had to feed the other children. I still had to make sure that they got up and got out of the house wherever they were going that day, that the house, you know, had to be cleaned, the laundry had to be done. All of those things had to keep on functioning. So I guess having other children puts a little bit of a stopper in the crazy womanness. It does actually force you to say, well, I have to kind of pick myself up now and get on with the show. Uh, but certainly with Fred, uh, he started to sleep in my bed a lot more at that point in time. And even to this day, as him five and a half, if my husband's not home, Fred automatically gets in. Um, very rarely does he sleep in his own bed. And I know some people will say that's a terrible thing, but I still want him with me. Even, you know, coming on to three years since the diagnosis, I still physically feel like I need to have him near me. It's almost like that grief hasn't, it hasn't subsided. There's something there that I still feel that lioness need to protect him in, a, in an almost physical way. Um, okay. So I think that you mentioned before ABA. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what, where and what, how that and how that journey started so going to the lizard center in sydney uh, which is an aba applied behavior analysis clinic aba when i had consistently read all of this information on autism and through my studies and going to early days workshops and the things that i could find 
and asked a lot of questions about ABA, uh, which I was generally turned off. I was literally told by people that it was not probably the best thing for us because Fred didn't have big behavioural issues um, or he didn't have meltdowns. So that was perceived by some people to be not behavioural issues. There were plenty of other behaviours, but just not the big meltdowns. Um, so we were we were constantly referred away from ABA and so I went to the Lizard Centre and Nicole uh, Rogerson, who runs that, is one of the most amazing women and has become a great mate over this journey. But um, another fellow crazy mother, really, we're just at opposite ends of the of the journey. But she, uh, uh, you know, she made so much sense. She was saying everything that I had been saying or had wanted someone to say to me was what she said that we needed to kick as much autism out of the ballpark as, as quick as we could. These kids didn't have time to wait. You know, little kids with autism become big kids with autism. We need to get on to things now. It was just, it was a very proactive approach. It was an individualised approach. And if you read government's own best practice guidelines, which is further insult to injury, they then now call the good practice guidelines because they didn't want to upset some of the other allied health professionals. ABA is the only evidence and research-based proven therapy to to be effective but it is 20 plus hours of one-on-one intensive early intervention it is monthful for us as country uh, people it's monthly visits to the clinic where we have anywhere between two and four days in the clinic itself it's hard work it's intensive for both the people delivering it the rest of the family and Fred not forgetting he's had a full-time job since this has started Uh, but It's play-based and it's fun and he has come on in leaps and bounds that are almost indescribable for friends and family that knew where he started to where he is now is absolutely massive. Um, It's also incredibly expensive. So there's a number of reasons why a lot of families find ABA too confronting and too difficult because 24-7 is Fred's program even if he's not in a therapy session it's being reinforced and 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 the way we speak to almost all of the children now uh, constantly narrating what we're doing making sure that he is speaking uh, and trying to teach him new words I mean we've gone from being non-verbal to to having some language so it's a very constant uh, and intensive program for everyone involved Uh, my husband and I stopped counting when we reached a hundred thousand a year uh, and that's after tax because there's no help with it. There are ways to do it cheaper. I've learned some of the tricks now. Um, it's probably a little bit for late for us, but I know some other families and we've advised them to get their ABA program supervisor to be a psychologist because there are Medicare options available through that. We have what they call a board certified behaviour analysis, BCBA, running our program and that's not re- it's not recognised by the Australian government yet. Or Medicare, which we're still working on. Um, so we don't get any of the, the rebate or benefit back from that. Uh, but I don't regret a cent. I don't regret a minute. It has been incredibly worthwhile. Uh, we still don't know if we're going to school next year or whether we're going to take another year uh, to homeschool for, uh, just to keep building our language up. Uh, but it's worth every cent. It's been worth every minute and I wouldn't change it for the world. You mentioned before that ABA is one of the evidence-based treatments for autism, is that right? So, and, and then you said that it's indescribable, some of the, the changes. Could you 
even though you said it was indescribable, can you possibly mention some changes? Um, I think you've mentioned to me before about the spontaneous moments where Fred will come up to you. Is that what you mean? Can you describe some of that for me? Just his general engagement with the world is one of the biggest differences. We went from a very disengaged, non-verbal child... We now have an incredibly vivacious, energetic, engaged little boy who has language, who not only has echolalic language or repeating language and learning of phrases, is now creating his own sentences, is now using his own words. Uh, one of our programs is Fred's Own Words. So, he's, you know, we're actively teaching all of these things, uh, but he is coming ahead to be a child who to watch in our backyard with his brother and sister, you would never know. The amount of joy that I feel watching them run around the pool and it'll be Fred initiates the game and they shouldn't be running around the pool, but it's Fred initiating the game of them pushing each other into the pool or Fred saying, come on, Rupee, come and let's play hide and seek or come on, Rupee, let's go ride the bikes and for them to play smash em ups in the bikes, you know, is just... The amount of joy that that produces for us as parents is at times overwhelming. One about, oh, it was March earlier this year, so about eight months ago, nine months ago, I was putting Fred into his car seat and just out of the blue he said, I love you, Mum. And I didn't know if I was ever going to hear a word, let alone to hear that independently spoken. Um, let me tell you, I had to get out of the car and get the tears and calm, you know, because it was just the most amazing experience. Uh, But even now, to hear him talk, to hear him say something completely original, uh, even if he's telling me something about his planes book or the Shrek doll sitting off on the couch or whatever silly thing it might be, uh, is just absolutely wonderful. He attends mainstream preschool. He will go to a mainstream school. Uh, he will, I have no doubt, go on to become a very significant contributing member of society. Uh, we laugh he may be the next David Attenborough. There is nothing in the natural world he cannot tell you, whether it's every shark, every whale, every fish. Uh, you know, he can tell you them all, every dinosaur. He's pretty good on the penguins and the polar bears and all of those sorts of things as well. Um, and then we also do lizards and snakes. And I mean, the natural world is an obsession for him. And he's recently started to articulate a lot more about numbers and to the point that his therapist said to me this week, I'm not actually sure he knows the alphabet. I must probe him on that. And she came in to me the next morning and said, remember what we talked about last night? Fred, can you sing the song for me? And he just sang the alphabet off, absolutely no drama. And so the things that he's now starting to pick up by osmosis, the things that he's starting to... It's not everything. We're always going to have to teach a lot of things, but he is starting to pick up things. He is starting to be able to find his way through the world that little bit easier. Uh, and, you know, an autistic kid who loves parties, who knew? You know, he can't wait. Let's go to the party. The problem I'm having at the moment is let's go to Christmas. He doesn't understand Christmas is a day. He just wants to go to the party with the Santa and the presents, and that's. You know, but that's awesome. He never wanted to go to a party. He never wanted to go and play with the kids. He never wanted to do that. And now he can't wait. 
That's gorgeous. Gosh, it sounds like it's been um, a fairly turbulent few years, but um, you're also quite an advocate for autism. Where has that taken you at the moment? What's happening there? Uh, I've got a background in politics and so when Fred was diagnosed and I remember turning up to our first day at the Lizard Centre and speaking to Nicole, I'd already started advocating for a visa change so that we could attract more allied health like speech pathologists and OTs out into country areas from overseas. Uh, So working with Nicole, uh, she has Autism Awareness Australia and we set up a charity, Country Autism Network, because it was so clear for families that they could just never find their way through the maze that we uh, presented a policy paper at the last federal election to all major parties looking for some changes to the political landscape surrounding autism. We actually do think there's some programs that could be got rid of and the money spent a lot better. Uh, we'd like to see children and all parents being given even just a folder of information when their children are diagnosed and something that they can keep and take through their journey and update because it's so important that they have that early information. Our psychologist said to us that there were 15% of kids could move off the spectrum with the right early intervention. I said, thank you very much. There are my goalposts. And whilst I don't know if we'll ever hit them, every child and every family should be given not only that hope and that aspiration, but the information to arm them to at least be able to start the journey. And then in a perfect world, there would be access to these right kinds of therapies. So... I'm still very active and have a lot of conversations with a lot of people about how we can better improve this journey for families. That's great. Um, Very active there and I think we'll get some details about those charities at the end. But on your journey so far, can you give us some ideas or three things that you've learned about other people on this journey? Uh, It's... (laughs) The hardest thing about autism quite often can be other people. Sometimes we just need them to say yes, to let us do what we need to do to support our children. Sometimes we need them to just get out of our way. Uh, Sometimes we need them to just take their condescending looks and go away Uh, because I can assure you whilst our kid in the supermarket might have upset their shopping, it's probably been a much harder day for us. Uh, But so the three sort of main things for me it really became apparent who your true friends were, who the people were that were prepared to sit with you while you cried over exactly the same thing for about a year. But the friends that were also there to turn up with a bottle of wine or turn up with dinner or take my my daughter out for a girly day um, to just, you know, I've got some friends who took two of my kids out to the circus just so that, you know, I had some quiet time with one child while my husband was away. So um, you really do learn who the people are that um, are there for you and genuinely there for you when there is nothing you can give in return. But then you also see who the people are that are really not very nice. And uh, I think look at you thinking, thank God it's not me and don't want anything to do with you or even the rest of your family. I don't know whether they think it's contagious, but I certainly now have very limited time. I I don't let those people pollute my life in any shape or form because I feel very sorry for them that they are so frightened of themselves or frightened of something different that they just don't want to be anywhere near it. Um, There's also a very small group of people Uh, and you're lucky if you can find them, who genuinely will stand and fight with you. People who will fight with you and for you and on those days when you just can't do it anymore 
will stand beside you and either push you forward again or step up to the plate um, in front of you. And again, the flip side, the people that are just more interested in taking advantage and getting your money from you. And the scariest thing is those people can look very similar at the beginning, uh, but it does very quickly sort itself out and their true selves are, uh, are soon shown. So I think learning the more about other people's characters and how that manifests in their relationships, both almost with themselves and with others, is special needs gives you a special prism to look at that through. Um, the other thing I guess I found, you know, ignorance is bliss, but you don't need to deliberately choose it. And the number of people that do choose to remain deliberately ignorant to anything other than what they consider perfectly mainstream is actually incredibly sad because the diversity and the special experiences you can get from children who are not mainstream, for the children who will bring you so much joy for the smallest incremental leaps forward or developmental steps forward, um, I feel very sad for them, but it's incredible how many people just would prefer to stick their heads in the sand and not have anything to do with it. Um, and I guess, you know, one of the other things that I found with people I didn't know with strangers, my husband and I used to call it kapowing people, that when they were giving us the funny looks, we'd always say, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing my best. He's got autism. How quickly they were to change their viewpoint. So I think sometimes if we are a little more open and a little more honest, uh, we can actually a, educate people but make our lives a bit easier because people will help. So what about yourself? I mean, that's really interesting, some of the, the view you have, and I love that idea that you said around seeing special needs through that prism. What about how you've turned that inwardly? What, about, what have you learned about yourself in this process? Um, I guess every mother is, you know, mother guilt. We love it. And I guess one of the things that I've learned is that I'm not a perfect parent, but I'm a pretty good one, um, that I will do anything for my children and nothing will get in my way. I didn't plan on autism. I didn't... If you'd have asked me before I had children, would this be what I have done? Would I have sold our investment properties? Would I have made incredible sacrifices financially? You know, the different things that we've done. I've given up working full time, uh, lots and lots of things. Would I have done that? I wouldn't have known. Um, so I now know that I will do anything for my children, that my children made me a better person. Uh, but the, the, the special needs really put a, an extra boost onto that. The other thing I've learned about myself is that I'm not afraid. And maybe I wasn't before, but I'm certainly not now. You know, I just feel like people can throw anything at me now. Say what you want. Do what you want. I don't care. I've probably had worse happen. Um, you are so irrelevant and that is so irrelevant in the scale of what I have to do for my son. I just don't care anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. I just get on with the show and do what needs to be done that's best serves him. And then probably a more recent discovery because it is a grief process and I've probably now finally come that I need to take care better of my take better care of myself that I can't take care of everyone else without looking after myself. And this is this is a new journey for me because I probably didn't do enough of that in the past. Okay, well that leads beautifully into if you could share us with us some of how you do take care of yourself or three things you do to keep balanced or focused or grounded. Yeah. Um, I prioritise. I'm very big on breaking things down into areas of priority. Sometimes that's purely on what's happening next, so it's just a, a pure timeline situation and I refuse to get bogged down on something that's happening in two weeks' time when I've got things to, that need to be done this week. So I've 
become very good at that, but I've, I've always been a bit of a list person, but I'm even stronger on lists. I now write a list of what I need to do and I just start. Even if I start with the easiest thing, it's sometimes you just need to start and keep going because the worst thing you can do is sit and look at that list for an hour uh, or a day or a week. Fighting that resistance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just start, just start. And to be open and honest, like I said, when we kapow people at the supermarket, sometimes by being that a uh, bit more open, a bit more honest, people get a better understanding of where you're coming from and what you're trying to uh, achieve or what the struggles or the challenges are of that day and and not to, not to try and hide and put the perfect face on, sometimes to acknowledge the struggles and the difficulties because it's amazing we've all got them but very few people talk about them. Uh, I try and get a little bit of time for me but not even so much by myself, just time with my children by myself, time with my husband on our own, time with just my family with no therapists or nannies or parents or family or friends or anyone else around just to have a bit of the family unit time um, just to reboot and get everyone back together and just have a little bit of a breather and also my big change that I'm hoping will be a permanent change is I've decided I'm back at the gym I'm back at the personal trainer all of those things went out the window I didn't have time I've now started to put the time in for that so that I feel better about myself. I feel better about, you know, just physically and more energy and go to the gym rather than having a glass of wine or, you know, but sometimes you need both. Sometimes you should go to the gym and have the glass of wine and sometimes you just can't cook and you have to forgive yourself. You know, no one is super mum all the time. We have to stop pretending we're super mums and say, I'm exhausted, I need a glass of wine and the kids are going to have McDonald's for dinner. That's great, Holly. So if people want to find you or find some of the the charitable works that you're doing, what different references can you give them to support children and their families with autism? Uh, I would suggest uh, we have Country Autism Network has a website which is countryautismnetwork.org.au and Autism Awareness Australia is also a website. I'm sure if you Googled that you would find it because I'm pretty sure it's autismawarenessaustralia.com or .org.au but I'm sure if you Googled it you would find them Um, and we both have Facebook pages as well. Um, I I would steer clear of anyone who tells you a softly softly approach with autism is going to work though but you could send direct messages to either Nicole or I on any of those and I know both of us would be more than happy to talk to anyone. That's great well that's really inspiring to hear how you've worked through the challenges and you've got a wonderful family and beautiful children and really you're you're making it work which is I think sometimes when people get a diagnosis whether it's autism or something else there's that fear in the beginning is how am I going to do this how am I going to cope and and parents aren't sure if they'll they'll come out the other side in one piece but it sounds like for you obviously it's early to some degree in your journey but I think that's great for other people and other women to hear um, the ways in which you've coped so I hope everyone listening has found something in Holly's story that they can use for themselves so don't forget to support the show by telling your friends or you can go to our Facebook page, Carrie Thompson Casey, that's Thompson without a P, and like us there and give us your feedback. You can also subscribe to the show in iTunes. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating if you like the show. You can also support us by going to the website, CarrieThompsonCasey.com. 
Thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realize your potential. Take care. Hi, it's Damien Christoph here. 2015 marks perhaps the most important event the Wellness Couch has ever conducted. We've had two sold-out wellness summits these last years, but honestly, nothing will come close to our first ever wellness breakthrough. Your favourite wellness couch experts, the Up For A Chat girls, Quirky Cookies Joe Whitten, Stu Hayes, Marcus Pierce, and of course the wellness guys, are all gathering in Dandong Ranges for three days and two nights for one incredible event. If you want possibly the greatest peer group in health and wellness to help you catapult your life to the next level, then we'd love to see you at the Wellness Breakthrough in February. For more information, go to www.thewellnesscouch.com. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.